This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the statewide death toll from COVID-19 passed another milestone Thursday. 139 new fatalities were reported. That pushes the statewide death toll to 11,011. The state also reported almost 3,300 new cases of coronavirus. The total so far, almost 612,000. Yet the governor is positively hopeful. Uh, the picture with, with COVID-19 is much more positive than what we were dealing with at the end of June and the beginning of July in particularly. Uh, you know, we are seeing a fewer number of cases, lower rate of positivity. The governor's predicting he'll win the legal fight over the forced reopening of schools. He lost round one, but if he strings the appeal out long enough, Ron DeSantis claims he'll win by default. You know, if, if, if the appeals court rules against the state, you know, I don't know, in three weeks, those districts, they're going to, they're, the parents are going to still want to have that option. So functionally, it's not really going to change. The governor likes to say schools are safer for kids and they're not as vulnerable as adults. But sometimes they are. Children have not been immune to this. We've had nearly 50,000 children in Florida that have suffered from COVID-19. 600 of them hospitalized and eight have passed away. A Miami congresswoman says schools need more help to reopen safely, so she's filed the Schools Act. That stands for Safe Considerations of the Health of Our Learning Students. It establishes the recommendations and the data needed to guide school reopenings and actually provides our educators with the tools and funding that they need to keep one another and our children safe. The supervisor of elections in Duval County is being called out by voting rights activists. They say he's doing next to nothing to help his constituents in Jacksonville vote by mail. We have reached out to him over and over and over again, and he has refused, and his actions does not show that he's really concerned about people getting to the polls. Today on the Sunrise Soapbox, you'll hear from a Florida attorney who says beware of lawmakers who want to inoculate corporations and give them immunity from lawsuits over COVID-19. A sweeping liability waiver to protect businesses from legitimate claims over COVID-19 would destroy a very cornerstone of our justice system. Lawsuits are often the only recourse the little guy has against businesses that do harm. We'll also have your calendar of events and check in with a Florida woman who's in trouble for slapping a kid in the face after he rear-ended her go-kart. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, August 28th. Governor Ron DeSantis is predicting he'll win the lawsuit with the teachers union over the forced reopening of public schools during a pandemic. The Florida Education Association won at the trial court level, but the state filed an immediate appeal. And DeSantis says if that goes on long enough, it all becomes a moot point. Every superintendent I've talked to said that going back the first day was one of the best days they can remember in their career because people, look, when you're out and you haven't seen your, your friends and stuff to be able to get back, you know, a lot of students were happy. And I know a lot of parents have been happy, you know, to have that choice uh, to be able uh, to send, um, you know, to send the kids back to school. And uh, there's some talk about, oh, the, there was a judge that ruled this and all this. But here's, here's what I, I, I was telling the commissioner when he was telling me about the ruling, I said, you know, if, if, if the appeals court rules against the state, you know, I don't know, in three weeks, those districts, they're going to, the parents are going to still want to have that option. So functionally, it's not really going to change. Um, you know, I think we'll win the appeal, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. But I think that, um, I think a lot of parents have been very, very happy to have that meaningful choice. And that's what we've worked hard to deliver. One minor correction. The governor said the judge, quote, ruled this and all this. 
What he meant to say was, the judge ruled the emergency order was unconstitutional because it threatens the safety of schools by conditioning funding on reopening of school buildings by the end of August, regardless of the dangers posed by the pandemic. This and all this indeed. The state was granted an automatic stay of the judge's order as soon as the governor filed a notice of appeal, so the Florida Education Association went back to court and on Thursday the judge dissolved the stay, which means that emergency order from the governor and from the education commissioner is no longer valid. The governor has insisted all along that schools are safe because kids don't suffer as much as adults if they're infected, and he claims they don't spread it to adults. But Dr. Eileen Marty, an epidemiologist at Florida International University, says it's really not as safe as the governor would have you believe. Think about what's going on in South Florida or in Florida right now. We've had 608,722 cases as of yesterday in this state alone with uh, nearly 11,000 members of our community dead and so many others with lingering symptoms from this horrific virus. And children have not been immune to this. We've had nearly 50,000 children in Florida that have suffered from COVID-19, 600 of them hospitalized and eight have passed away. This is an incredibly serious, disease. We now know, for example, that the virus clearly does reinfect people as we suspected, and this could have grave consequences for all the types of tools that we're trying to develop. Speaking of schools, Miami Congresswoman Debbie Mukersel Powell has filed a new COVID relief bill to try to get more money and smarter guidelines for schools that are struggling to reopen. The Safe Considerations of the Health of Our Learning Students Act, or known as the Schools Act, the importance of uh, this piece of legislation, it establishes the recommendations and the data needed to guide school reopenings and actually provides our educators with the tools and funding that they need to keep one another and our children safe. From a health perspective, it will have the CDC issue guidance to keep our children safe in the school setting and answering difficult questions like, how do we handle school meals? How do we keep our students safely distanced while they're learning in school? How do we send them to school and how many kids can fit in, in one bus? Do we need to add buses? Those are all the questions that we need to answer uh, and get answers from the CDC. It also provides state and local officials with the information to consider for the timing to either open fully or consider alternative options. And it's going to give our teachers and administrators the funding needed to procure the tools needed to keep our kids safe. It, it allows our educators to purchase more supplies so that students are not forced to share books, potentially passing the virus to one another. It increases staffing for nurses and mental health counselors in the school setting to address the physical and the mental health fallout of COVID. It provides our educators with the paid family and sick leave that they should have been entitled to months ago. And for those schools that have to remain virtual due to public health conditions, it will provide funding to procure digital tools needed so students do not suffer from the digital divide. Carla Hernandez-Matz with the United Teachers of Dade says they can definitely use the help. Miami-Dade schools are starting off the year virtually. Next week, we're going to have, you know, about 350,000 kids logged on uh, to an online platform. We decided to go virtual precisely because we don't have not only the, the metrics uh, have not been met in terms of the community spread, the you know the rate of being trending uh, down or decreasing, um, but we also know that we just don't have the resources necessary. 
We want to make sure that our kids are with us in school. I think now more than ever, people have realized how important just the socializing, the, you know, the social emotional learning, the growth, the academics, all these different things that happen in the school setting, how important they are. And we want to make sure that they are still available uh, for our students and we want them back, but we can only have them back under the right conditions. Right now, the conditions are not there. When we see the national government and the state government threatening that if we don't reopen, you know, at brick and mortar, you know, by any means necessary, and they say, we will not give you the funding uh, that you require, it, it's very shameful. It's irresponsible. Um, you know, we have, you know, felt that frustration because we want our kids in our classes, but we want to do it the right way. As Florida's COVID death toll broke the 11,000 mark, the governor was once again downplaying the threat. DeSantis says we're better off now than we were at the height of the pandemic. As we sit here today in the state of Florida, uh, the picture with with COVID-19 is much more positive than what we were dealing with at the end of June and the beginning of July in particularly. Uh, you know, we are seeing a fewer number of cases, lower rate of positivity. So if you look at where we're at now, uh, we see uh, really significant declines in the number of COVID positive patients who are hospitalized, both in the general population as well as in ICU. Uh, so we're down over 50 percent from our July peak in COVID positive patients who were hospitalized. Uh, ICU is down around 45 percent. Uh, from uh, the July peak. And if you look at certain parts of the state uh, that had epidemics, um, uh, Dade County is down 58% COVID positive hospitalization since the peak. Broward down 55%, Palm Beach down 61%, uh, Orange where I was yesterday is down 64%. Here in the Tampa Bay area, Hillsborough is down 63% for COVID positive hospitalizations. Pinellas is down 71%, Pasco is down 65%, and Manatee is down 79%. Um, so those are good trends, and I think that those are trends that are durable, at least for the near future, given that we've seen a big decline in the number of people going to emergency departments for COVID-like illnesses. Uh, that had peaked uh, July 7th in the state of Florida. It's steadily gone down ever since. And we're now at levels where we were at the beginning of June when we had uh, relatively low prevalence um, in the state. And so, uh, so those are good trends. Uh, we obviously want those to continue. Uh, those trends occurred even as the state continued to function. Uh, not only do we have uh, businesses operating, uh, we have all, all the theme parks we're operating, we have hotels, we did have people visit, not as much as we would have had under normal circumstances, uh, but I, I think that uh, you know, the approach of one, protecting the vulnerable, which we've done, two, supporting our hospitals, making sure they have what they need, but then three, keeping society functioning um, is an approach that, that served us well. We're going to continue to do that. Miami-Dade has been the epicenter of COVID-19 in Florida, but they're about to edge into the next phase of recovery. On Monday, restaurants will be allowed to partially reopen. But Dr. Eileen Marty at FIU doesn't trust the numbers they're using to justify the easing of restaurant restrictions. She says politicians in Tallahassee have rigged the numbers in favor of reopening. Our percent positivity rate is a little bit artificial right now because of the way that the state of Florida at Tallahassee has decided to provide the information they're combining the results of antigen tests with the results of molecular tests. Molecular tests are much more sensitive and give you a better picture of the positivity rate. 
the antigen test has a lot of false negatives. When you combine the results, you get an artificially lower percent positivity. But even with that bit of um, political trickery, which is going on right now, even that number, it's considerably higher. It's near 10%. And the number of people in our hospitals with COVID-19 in our ICUs and on ventilators is more than double what we had back in May when we reopened the first time. When we reopened the first time, we were hovering, and by molecular test only, at around four to 5%. Now, combining antigen tests, which are giving you, a, you know, an artificially lower number with molecular tests, we're hovering around 10%. And we have so many more patients in hospital. So that, what does that mean? That means that the viral load in our community is considerably higher today than it was when we reopened the first time. Yes, we're doing a lot better, thank goodness, than we were uh, just a month ago. However, we are absolutely not out of the woods and this can go south incredibly fast. So do not view any opening up as a reflection of our being in a safe place. We're not in a safe place. We absolutely have to follow everything necessary to keep a lid on this as best we can. The COVID crisis is also complicating elections in Florida, but don't tell Duval County Election Supervisor Mike Hogan. For a city its size, Jacksonville has a very low number of people who vote by mail, and voting rights advocates are blaming Hogan. Brad Ashwell, with All Voting is Local, says supervisors across the state should be doing everything they can to make it easier to vote by mail during a pandemic. But he says Hogan has done the absolute minimum. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and it's almost certain we will be in November still. That's you know, one of many reasons why it's so critical that Supervisor Hogan and really every other election official in the state do everything within their power to ensure voters can vote safely. Voters shouldn't have to choose between their health and the right to vote, and we're going to keep saying that until this election is over. Um, vote by mail is more critical than ever. Um, it's an option for voters this election cycle, um, given COVID-19 health concerns. Um, it's extremely important that supervisors of elections encourage voters to vote by mail and that they do everything they can to ensure those votes are counted. Um, you know, I go further to say Supervisor Hogan has an obligation, um, both professionally and morally, to ensure our elections are safe, secure, and accessible to all registered voters. Um, we were pretty alarmed when we heard right before the deadline to request a vote by mail ballot that Supervisor Hogan still hadn't sent anything to voters encouraging them to do that. This is all basic voter education. He, he should be doing that all and much more, especially given the fact that we're in a pandemic. It's important that he, you know, not only educate, but also expand options and educate people of those options as far as where to return those ballots. Sam Goodley is the statewide voting rights organizer for the ACLU of Florida, and he says Supervisor Hogan won't even talk with them. Duval actually had the very lowest percentage of vote-by-mail ballots that were mailed in 2018 of any large county, and in fact, even a lower percentage than any mid-size or rural county. This is in of itself a concern to us, and our concerns about uh, Mike Hogan's office have been compounded by his reluctance to speak not only with us, but with constituents of his who have called in, as well as other statewide nonpartisan voting right groups that just want to ensure that all supervisors of elections are exercising every option at their disposal 
to ensure that folks don't have to choose between their health and their vote. The ACLU is not the only group being ignored by the supervisor. Reginald Gundy is senior pastor at Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church in Jacksonville. We're trying to figure out how we can help him do what needs to be done to make sure everybody has proper access to voting. Unfortunately, our appeal to him has fallen on deaf ears. We are forced to pursue or take other actions that we think would not be necessary if we could just sit down to the table with him and get him to do those things that we're asking him to do. I do not want us to have to fight Mr. Hogan to get something done that he could do on his own. But if it is necessary for us to challenge him and to challenge us in the course of any other means necessary that is legal, and we'll do that because we have reached out to him over and over and over again, and he has refused, and his actions does not show that he's really concerned about people getting to the polls. So I'm hoping and praying now from the spiritual side of I think he's a spiritual man that I plead, appeal to the better angel side of him that he would do what is right for the people of Duval County. The voting rights groups want the Duval supervisor to tell people how they can vote by mail, provide more drop boxes to return those ballots, and they want early voting precincts at colleges and universities restored. Next up on the Sunrise Soapbox, a guest editorial. The subject, granting legal immunity to companies to protect them from COVID lawsuits. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. Time now for a word from our sponsors. Predict It is like the stock market for all things politics. Instead of trading stock in companies, you're investing money into your opinions on everything from election results to how many times President Trump will tweet this week. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Our podcast listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Try it today. Welcome back. Our guest today on the Sunrise Soapbox is Jacksonville attorney Eddie Farah. Corporate America is trying to convince state and federal lawmakers they need protection from COVID-19. Not the disease itself, mind you. What they want is immunity from lawsuits resulting from the COVID crisis. Eddie wrote a great editorial on the subject, so we asked him to read it for you. Imagine you or a family member were injured because of a defect in your car's airbag, but you weren't allowed to hold the automobile maker accountable. Imagine someone you care about being hurt by an underage drunk driver, but the law protected the bar that served him from any legal responsibility, even though they never checked the ID and overserved him. Or imagine your child suffers a broken arm on faulty playground equipment, but you're prohibited from seeking justice from the manufacturer because its industry got a law passed to protect them from safety accountability. Now imagine you or a family member became sick with COVID-19 because a business didn't bother to follow expert advice about best practices for health and safety requirements because they knew there was nothing you could do. That's what the future could be for millions of citizens as special interests seek new laws to protect themselves instead of the public from COVID-19 responsibility. Trying to persuade the Florida legislature and other governments to issue a massive undeserved liability security blanket to protect them from lawsuits related to COVID-19. Most good businesses are working hard to protect employees, clients, and customers by embracing health experts' advice about working from home, making safe distancing and other proven best practices. 
But those bad actors who callously disregard such safe, smart, strategic steps don't deserve a pass on responsibility. Sweeping legislation being sought in Florida and elsewhere to shield businesses from being sued over COVID-19 cases. Even when their actions, decisions, policies, or mistakes could lead directly to people getting sick or worse. It's a dangerous virus of its own. This is worrisome. As millions of people return to work, many discovering that their employers aren't providing a safe working environment that follows CDC and other health guidelines. As scary as this pandemic continues to be, intentionally creating a new legal monster that hurts the public would make things even worse. Advocates for such broad liability protection assert that impacts from COVID-19 aren't their fault and they shouldn't be held responsible for people who get sick or die, even if their actions or inactions contributed to or caused the bad outcome. For more than 230 years, Americans have turned to the courts to seek justice from those who harm others. The founding principles mean everyone should be responsible and accountable for their actions. A sweeping liability waiver to protect businesses from legitimate claims over COVID-19 would destroy a very cornerstone of our justice system. Lawsuits are often the only recourse the little guy has against businesses that do harm. And we must not strip away the right of individual citizens to seek justice. Real people are victims of COVID-19. 600,000 Floridians have been infected. 10,000 of our family, colleagues, friends, and neighbors have been lost to the virus. The Florida legislature and other governments should properly reject any big business push to let them off the hook for any calculated failure to prevent even more of us from being added to the sad and dark count. Before it's too late, let's stop a terrible idea from becoming a bad legislative bill that could ultimately become a very dangerous law. Eddie Farah is the founding partner of Farah & Farah, a personal injury law firm in Jacksonville. Your calendar of events begins with an online meeting at the Florida Board of Physical Therapy at 8. The University of Florida Board of Trustees continue a two-day retreat in Volusia County at 9. The Council of Presidents at the Florida College System holds an online meeting at 1. Today is the deadline for candidates and political committees to file their financials through the end of August 21st. And on Saturday, the new College Board of Trustees meets at 9 o'clock. And before we get to the Florida Man segment, let me warn you, you will hear a couple of really bad words. I was going to paraphrase them, but honestly, I'm tired of covering up for idiots. So here we go. A white Florida woman is facing criminal charges for slapping an 11-year-old black child across the face. 30-year-old Haley Zager says she did it because the kid rear-ended her in a go-kart at Boomer's Game Center in Boca Raton. She also complained to an employee, saying, and I quote, The fucking nigger hit me in the back. They couldn't charge her for that, but karma always seems to find a way. As Zager was arrested on suspicion of child abuse, police say they found an Altoid tin in her underwear containing prescription pills. Pills for which she had no prescription. Can you say drug charges? That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, and I'm taking a sanity break next week, but we'll return after Labor Day as we continue to plumb the depths of Florida politics. 